1: Legal counsel to President Trump, Jenna Ellis.
2: Well, good morning, and it is a great Monday here in the free state of Florida. And, of course, the big story over the weekend and starting on uh, Friday afternoon was that the second indictment of former President Trump has been unsealed. So we were able to look at that and uh, talk through that. And, of course, everyone on mainstream media uh, was talking about this. And this is unprecedented, a second indictment of the former president. And most of the analysis, and especially from political pundits back and forth, Uh, was based on really whether or not that individual or network loves President Trump or hates President Trump. And a lot of the commentary on Twitter was also based on whether uh, people are supporting President Trump or not supporting President Trump. And I would imagine that if uh, this was an indictment of former President Barack Obama or former non-president, thankfully, Hillary Clinton, uh, then the commentary from everyone would be exactly the inverse. And so the rule of law, though, doesn't and shouldn't Ever operate that way. And so I wanted to uh, spend some time this morning getting a a more objective legal analysis because we as conservatives and especially as Christians should always be concerned uh, with truth and, of course, with analyzing more objectively. And obviously, we can talk about politics and we can all have our opinions and we can support or not uh, President Trump or other candidates. And political analysis is always fine. But when it comes to uh, the rule of law, we want to uh, always before that and before the rule of law objectively and so when it comes to whether or not this uh, Indictment is politically motivated. We can certainly talk about that But um, I wanted to bring on my first uh, very special guest Mike Molito who is an attorney out of Colorado a criminal defense attorney a former assistant attorney general in Colorado um, Actually one of my longtime mentors and sometimes lawyers and all around a really great guy and um, Mike I wanted to start with um, just assuming the indictment is, is not political for a moment. I mean, just kind of not, not going there yet. But um, just getting your overall take. I mean, this is 37 counts. And uh, what what is even being charged here? And what is your overall impression of this indictment from a legal perspective?
3: Thanks, Jenna, and good morning. So, Jenna, first of all, like you said, we're going to assume just for the sake of the show that Donald Trump walks into our office and says, hey, I need to hire you or anyone who's charged with these charges. So the gist of it, just to kind of give the audience a real quick thousand foot view, is that President Trump maintained documents that had various levels of classification. He held on to them and willfully retained them basically wrongfully and failed to deliver them over when he was supposed to. So that's that's kind of the crux of it, and that really represents the first 31 counts. And then what we have in, in counts 32 uh, through 37, or th- I should say 38, because that includes a uh, co-conspirator, is essentially a form of obstruction of justice and a conspiracy to obstruct justice. And that has two segments, two violations of uh, 18 U.S.C. within it. So... That's that's kind of the, the foundation here of what you're looking at. So where do, you, and, where do you want me to go from here?
2: Yeah. And so and so I think for people, you know, to to understand what this is. I mean, obviously, the first pushback to this is, well, weren't these his documents and, and didn't he uh, t- turn them over eventually? And why uh, can he even be charged with something like this under a criminal statute? Um, aren't we just talking about, you know, potentially? Um, you know, a violation of, you know, the Presidential Records Act, which has never been criminal before in America's history. So, I mean, why, why are we talking even in the realm of criminal behavior?
3: So what we have here is um, a, a unique situation, and I'll put it to you this way. You have essentially a series of warnings or a warning that was, uh delivered to President Trump and uh, his co-conspirator here. And the warning came in the form of a subpoena. And it said, here, we know you have these documents. We have reason to believe you have these documents. And and sort of critical part, which I'm going to get to in a little bit later, but to more uh, pointedly ask your question or answer your question, what we have here is President Trump essentially um, making prior statements, making statements to reporters that demonstrate that he knew the material was not declassified, and essentially knowing that he needed to return it to the government. So that's the detail. in it. It's not incredibly unusual, but it's certainly not boiler po- boilerplate, and it's what's considered uh a speaking indictment because it does go into such detail so again kind of going forward operating under the assumption that everything is the truth it's showing that the president had knowledge that he shouldn't have had this material in his possession
2: right and so with this then and i'm speaking with um attorney mike molito um and uh, would this then differentiate this particular conduct that it's that's being alleged from um, other, Conduct like we've heard in the news that uh, former Vice President uh, Joe Biden had classified documents, had to return them. Former Vice President um, Mike Pence had documents that he had to return. And and, and I, you know, obviously call Biden former Vice President, sitting President, but, you know, while he was uh, in the the capacity of Vice President, those documents had to be returned. Um, Obama, we've heard about President Clinton's sock drawer, some of those things. Um, But we haven't heard. That, uh, that there was any non-compliance when that was discovered. So, so I see that just from a legal perspective as the differentiating factor here. Is that your analysis also?
3: Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. This, this indictment lays out that he received the subpoena and then it was from that point moving forward that he was looking for ways to obstruct justice or not hand over the material and, and the de- you know the detail in here is is really goes into some minutiae uh, it talks about everything from directing the movement of boxes uh, by his you know, his personal assistant it talks about how he deceived his lawyers or tricked his lawyers which you know from the context even though it lists attorney one attorney two and attorney three attorney one appears to be Evan Corcoran and attorney three appears to be Bob and those those are essentially the crux that it's not so much that he maintained the documents, but rather he didn't promptly return them when asked and then also engaged in the scheme to keep them when he shouldn't have
2: so um so so this makes more sense than in in context it's not so much that we're talking about you know classified documents versus unclassified his ability to declassify as um, as a president or you know possess documents or, or whatever and I've, I've heard some commentary from um, former attorney General Bill Barr who um, you know whether or not anybody listening um, you know likes Bill Barr or not you know he, he was the former sitting attorney general and um, and at least from a, a legal perspective um, has has suggested that these particular documents aren't uh, are not just President Trump's personal records but actually belong to the government. So when the government asks for them back then there is, a duty to um, not only comply with that request but specifically to not mislead the government or to in his words jerk them around and so it seems like and and, and mike when you and i were talking uh yesterday about this this seems kind of like a you know um mess around and find out sort, sort of situation yes. here yes. <laughs> right where uh where if If President Trump had simply said, oh, yeah, we have these documents, here you go, then this situation would have been avoided.
3: Right. And I think he takes things to a new level. Your um, shortened version of the mess around and find out, (laughs) I I think, is exactly on point here. And so, you know, when you when you have this situation and you're a defense counsel, you approach this like a, a surgeon. And the cancer is not going to go away. You have to analyze the facts. You take a look at it, and you explore with your client. You explore possible defenses, including, you know, um, pointing fingers at, at other folks, other past uh, high-level politicians who had similar uh, improper maintenance of classified materials.
2: And and so then, in in your view. Um, just from a legal perspective, and um, and of course, you know, we can we can talk about whether other people should uh, be charged or not, and you know, political opponents, all of that kind of thing. But setting the politics aside, and just on the legal, is this a serious indictment compared to, for example, um, the Manhattan indictment that that in bill barr's words which i actually think was apt um is being held together he said by paper clips and rubber bands i mean it's it's a ridiculous legal theory does this one seem to have more teeth and more merit on face again assuming that the indictment uh, the facts that were laid out uh, they can prove and just for sake of argument are true
3: absolutely you know alvin bragg i think campaigned on on more or less trying to uh put President Trump in the crosshairs this particular indictment the detail is everything from here's videotape showing people moving boxes here are text messages showing communications here are prior statements by the president on the campaign trail showing that he had knowledge of uh, having to have a responsibility over such material and then of, of course you have the clip that they reference where president trump spoke with a reporter and acknowledged the fact that he didn't declassify these in a time period that he otherwise could have and that he should have returned it more or less so this this has some teeth really unlike a lot of indictments i've seen before it's not boilerplate it goes into incredible detail it's not filled with legal ease and it's straightforward and explains where the documents were kept wrongly it explains how deceit was employed to essentially obstruct justice
2: and in just the last like two minutes or so uh, mike molito that we have um, in this first segment and i want to hold you on into the next to kind of go through um, this a, a little bit more in detail and then, you know, kind of go to the the defense side. Um, but give people then just a perspective of um, what we can expect tomorrow in terms of the next steps in the process, because you know, this this isn't going to move quickly and I think we're going to be talking about this uh, for a while and, um, and we'll be talking about it, um, you know, especially tomorrow, but then as soon as uh, you know, the first initial appearance, we, we may not hear about it for a while, just like uh, the Manhattan an indictment and it's kind of pending. So what are the initial steps in terms of the process that we can expect uh, tomorrow?
3: Sure. So tomorrow we're going to see, you know, the president appear in court. And then what we're going to have is, uh, of course, the media is to be expected. And from the defense counsel perspective, that's when they're going to start um, interacting with the government. They're going to start obtaining the discovery, which is just A slightly fancy lawyer word for the paperwork in the case the relevant paperwork that the government has gathered and this is not like you said this is not going to be something that is solved in an instant this is not going to be something that happens quickly the wheels of justice as the old phrase goes turn slowly so the defense counsel are going to uh, take their opportunity to hire the experts they need to hire examine the evidence get additional counsel involved and really just get ready to just tear this thing wide open
2: yeah well we'll talk about the uh, defense side when we come back with uh, mike molito who is a great attorney out of my former home state of colorado and longtime friend really excellent lawyer appreciate uh, your breakdown of this so we'll be right back here with more on jenna ellis in the morning to talk about the second indictment of former president trump we'll be right back
1: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
2: Welcome back, and we are talking with my special guest today, Mike Melito, who's an attorney out of Colorado and a former uh, assistant attorney general and now criminal defense attorney, has a lot of experience in uh, both prosecuting and defending uh, indictments. And, you know, the ones around classified documents are definitely unique, but in terms of breaking down the legal analysis. And I wanted to do this this morning because we just got the unsealed version on uh, Friday afternoon so that we can actually. To go through this and not speculate. And I think it's very important that we do this so that we all have a better understanding of exactly what is going on, what uh, former President Trump faces, and we aren't just doing the kind of top-level Siloed political analysis of either, you know, this is totally a witch hunt if you're for President Trump, or um, he's absolutely uh, condemned and the worst person ever and totally a criminal, um, you know, if you hate President Trump. And I think that that's kind of where a lot of the top level analysis is going when you see some of the tweets and you see some things in the media. And that really doesn't drill down into the legal concerns and objectively what's contained in the indictment. And so, as we talked about in the previous segment, um, really it boils down to uh, the government through the Department of Justice is alleging that um, Trump knew the material was classified and refused to return it when asked. He tried to, uh, secondly, obstruct the investigation and uh, did that, thirdly, through a conspiracy that is being alleged with um, his co-conspirator that has been indicted is a former Aid. And so um, I wanted to also play this clip and and get uh, Mike Molito's reaction on the other side uh, from Bill Barr, who appeared on uh, Fox News Sunday with Shannon Bream uh, yesterday and um, kind of his his top level take on um, some of the response to. Uh, to to just the, the political concern. And then we're going to get into more of the defenses with Mike Molito. So this is what Bill Barr, uh, the former sitting attorney general under Bush and Trump, said to Shannon Bream yesterday. This is clip one. What about this, this chief argument that comes up for the president's allies and his legal team that this should have been handled under the Presidential Records Act, not this espionage act charge and other federal statutes that were used here?
0: Well, it started out under the Presidential Records Act and and the archives trying to retrieve documents that Trump had no right to have. But it quickly became clear that what the government was really worried about were these classified and very sensitive documents. I was shocked by the degree of sensitivity of these documents and how many there were frankly. And uh, so the government's agenda was to get those, uh, protect those documents and get them out. And I think it was perfectly appropriate to do that. It was the right thing to do. Uh, And I think the counts under the Espionage Act uh, that he willfully retained those documents are solid counts now I, I do think we have to wait and see what the defense uh, says and, and, and what proves to be true but I do think that even half what Andy McCarthy said which is if even half of it is true then he's toast I mean it's a it's a pretty it's a very detailed indictment uh, and it's very very damning and this idea of presenting Trump as a victim here a victim of a witch hunt uh, is ridiculous Yes, he's been a victim in the past. Yes, his uh, adversaries have obsessively pursued him with phony claims, and I've and I've been at his side defending against them when he is a victim. But this is much different. He's not a victim here. He was totally wrong uh, that he had the right to have those documents. Those documents are among the most sensitive secrets that the country has. He. They have to be in the custody of the archivist. He had no right to maintain them and retain them. And he kept them uh, in a way uh, at Mar-a-Lago that anyone who really cares about national security, would their stomach would churn at it.
2: So that was Bill Barr uh, speaking to Shannon Bream yesterday on Fox News Sunday. And um, I want to bring in um, Attorney Mike Molito now uh, to kind of dive into this deeper because I think that this this sets up uh, the next question mike which is okay we, we've looked at this and and i think that that Barr has a point that there have been witch hunts and and we've all seen those and i've also been at at president trump's side defending him uh with with some of those and of course i'm not as lawyer haven't worked for him in uh two and a half years so you know i'm, I'm talking just purely from a um a, a Legal perspective as a citizen's view, uh, but he is going to retain. Um, I would expect some other lawyers, uh, probably local to the state of Florida, um, who have practice in this particular jurisdiction, um, and and some other people. So, um, so Mike, what are the defenses then? beyond just well this is a witch hunt and this is another political persecution and um and and kind of the fundraising apparatus that president trump seems to have been focused on um, over the last 48 72 hours what are the substantive legal defenses uh to this indictment
3: so the first one we've already heard some foreshadowing from the former president himself it's it's going to effectively be hey I declassified these materials. Now, a lot of people are going to say, "Haha, here's this tape recording." Uh, you obviously say something that contradicts that to this reporter, saying you knew it should have been declassified. He makes some commentary to another individual by saying, "Hey, you, you need to keep it a distance. You can't really read this, but but this is still classified." So there's actually. Um, a factual defense that arises from that. And it, it's as simple, quite frankly, I think a kid could think of it, but it's as simple as I was trolling these media people. I, I actually had declassified it and I'm not being inconsistent. They just didn't know that I was pulling their leg effectively. So that really, believe it or not, that that simple explanation could theoretically upend the entire Uh, first 31 charges so you have that what that does is that eliminates one of the elements that the government of course must prove beyond a reasonable doubt by simply pulling those documents out of their out of their prior classification that would be the argument so that that's that's the upfront one that theoretically would maintain a a certain amount of consistency the second one is a form where you would um, you would draw highlights, and you would draw uh, similarities to other people—Pence, uh, Clinton, Biden, uh, numerous other people—who've willfully maintain classified documentation beyond when they should. And so that piece, as as a political persecution theory by the defense, is I'm being unfairly persecuted, and you're effectively going to maintain your attack, you're going to attack things factually, but you're also going to claim this disparate treatment and that justice requires in almost a jury nullification fashion. In other words, you're trying to convince the jury that, hey, if there was some illegality, that this is something that's being prosecuted for the wrong reasons. It's not being prosecuted because justice demands it. And instead, it's, it's, there's minimal harm. No one was hurt. No one was, you know, no one died as a result of me even coming close to disclosing this. Assuming I did it, and then you, you hope the jury says we're sickened by this behavior, we're sickened by this partisanship of the government, and you're a free man, not guilty. So that's that's one approach.
2: Yeah, and, and that makes a lot of sense. And and going back to your first, um, your first theory, Mike Molito, uh, about um, saying, you know, okay, we have. A, we can contextualize these these seemingly uh, bad tapes. We can contextualize you know everything else. Um, do the documents have to have still been classified then as a part of the government's case? And if they were not, um, just the mere fact that they were not his personal records, but um, but property of the government, regardless of ca- classification, does that matter?
3: So we're we're the the crime itself hinges upon the ability uh that that he's charged with and that's not to say you can't amend this but if you read 18 usc section 793 that's the first 31 charges that talks about possessing or controlling these documents that have some amount of of classification to them well as soon as it becomes Um, unclassified, it's, it's really no different than just a newspaper. And so that's, that would be, you know, that I think that's, it could be a stretch, but that's certainly something that eliminates an element. And so when you eliminate the elements, the government can no longer prove it. And one of the first things that a jury hears right before it's, it's charged to do its duty to examine the facts and apply the law, the jury hears the instructions of law. And part of that discourse, part of that listening to the judge, is going to involve a segment where a judge is more or less going to tell them, this crime has the following elements, and the judge walks the jury through them. And then the judge emphasizes that the government has the burden of proof to make sure that there is evidence at a level that is beyond a reasonable doubt for each and every element. And then that And in that situation, only then could a jury convict. So if you remove an element or you cause reasonable doubt, as we defense attorneys like to consistently point out, you cause reasonable doubt as to a single element, by law, the jury should not be convicting that person.
2: And I'm talking with um, defense attorney Mike Molito out of uh, Colorado and a former one-time assistant attorney general. And um, I actually interned for him way back in the day. So we've known each other a <laughs> long time. And he's given me a lot Best of great... intern uh, I ever had. Oh, <laughs> you're very sweet. Uh, and uh, and uh, still do some work together. And, uh, you know, he's always uh, great to talk through a lot of these um a lot of these these legal analyses, because um, there is so much to this, and I, and I appreciate you going so in depth, because it's um, it is more complicated than just this is a witch hunt or oh this is a smoking gun, and I think that. To make it, um, or, or, to, or to really try to say, well, it's so it's so fluffy and kind of have just the top level is really doing a disservice um, to people who need to understand what's actually being alleged. And so, when we look, Mike, at the uh, conspiracy count, talk about that one in particular as well, because a lot of the commentary, um, at least on Twitter and stuff, is, is kind of focused more on just the documents, what were the documents, um, you know, was anybody harmed, you know, with the documents, and so why is why is conspiracy conspiracy, um, not only part of this, and is that a foundational um, issue to the rest of it? Or you know, can you get to a potential conviction without conspiracies? Because I've, I've seen some commentary on Twitter that I think is really m- muddying the waters in terms of understanding uh, that particular charge.
3: Sure, Jenna. So I'm going to break that down into simple terms. Conspiracy uh, actually doesn't require the crime to be committed. Conspiracy requires that there's an agreement that takes place between uh, people. Conspiracy then requires that some sort of step or conduct is taken by one or more of those conspirators. And that that step that's taken was done so in order to effectuate or bring about the object of the conspiracy. So here is a very simple example: If you and I would let's say shed our, our current employment and we decide to go on the road and become bank robbers together, um,
2: we new could Bonnie and Clyde. Sit down,
3: <laughs> right? Bon- yeah, there you go, two lawyerly <laughs> Bonnie and Clydes. So we sit down, we um, start talking about our plan to break into a bank, and and it goes beyond just talk, and maybe. I steal the car that we're going to use as our getaway car or I even break the window of the car that I want to use to to you know to get into it and then race off with that car that will at some point in time be used in our bank robbery. So clearly we had an agreement you and I set about planning how we would go rob that bank and then I certainly took towards the commission of the overall conspiracy of bank robbery by Looking to go get, breaking into a car and and driving off with it, so that that is a good something that if we got foiled moments after that, if we got foiled moments after that, then the government has some pretty good evidence against us. Assuming that they maybe raided our our hideout and went in and saw our plans that we had written down or maps that we had or other things uh, associated that you you know you sort of might have that movie mindset of what goes into a bank robbery. So there you go. The actual object of the conspiracy doesn't need to be completed. You only need to get partway there and have an agreement to do so.
2: Yeah, and that that substantial step, and so um, so it'll be interesting to see how uh, you know all of this moves forward with um, with the co-conspirator that uh, is now indicted, which is uh, President Trump's aide, and um, and moving forward, and so um, so just in the last uh, two minutes or so that I have with you, uh, Mike Molito, and thank you for uh, for your analysis and and in depth. Um, what is your prediction, and I know that this is really, uh, really early on in the situation, but um, of whether or not this even goes all the way to trial, because I know that um, a lot of uh, people are anticipating that. We've talked a lot about, you know, what um, lawyers could argue, what the defense will have to prove at trial, um, and then the defenses. And so, you know, what are some other, uh, do you think that this will, will get to trial, and how quickly does that happen or not quickly? And what are some other possibilities um, in terms of uh, just a settlement?
3: Well, you know, we've had other uh, famous individuals uh, mishandle classified information like General David Petraeus, former CIA director and once four-star general. Um, So he wound up with a misdemeanor. Maybe this is a negotiated plea that gets down to that level. Uh, But President Trump has been throughout his entire career, certainly political and business career, a fighter. So I anticipate that this goes to a fight. The evidence, of course, it's challenging for, I think, any attorney, no matter how seasoned. But at the end of the day, this is not going to be solved in the next few weeks. This is something that's going to happen more than a year out. That's my wager.
2: Well, thanks so much, Mike Melito. Really appreciate it. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
1: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
2: Welcome back, and I want to turn the conversation now to uh, some other things that we need to be aware of as conservatives and as Americans and uh, some of the problems that we are still facing under the current Biden regime. And one of those things continues to be looming supply chain crises. And there was a great piece in The Daily Wire by our good friend Jim Nels, who is out of Chicago and is himself a uh, supply chain manager. And Jim, uh, welcome back to the show. And I always really appreciate your analysis of um, you know all of these things because um, you're so Uh, experienced in the whole supply chain area. And um, what is the overall looming crisis uh, for specifically the maritime supply chain crisis that you write about?
1: Well, good morning, Jen. It's great to be on with you again. And we're we're seeing an unprecedented situation happening now. One man-made and one is Mother Nature kicking in, which is giving our friends like uh, AOC a little bit more fuel for their fire. Uh, Let's start on the West Coast. 20,000 dock workers have been working without a contract since July of 2022, and they're starting to get a little bit upset about that, um, understandably, actually. Um, they're starting to do slowdowns across 30 different West Coast ports. In fact, on Saturday, the port of Seattle was actually shut down because not enough workers showed up to uh, unload the ships. And we've seen that happen in Los Angeles and Long Beach. And Los Angeles and Long Beach are is the, the nation's two largest and busiest ports right now. So that's uh, really uh, becoming a hindrance there. But the interesting thing that's happening is a lot of companies said, okay, we, we can't rely on the West Coast, so we're going to um, ship goods through the Panama Canal, use uh, golf ports or ports on the East Coast. Well, the Panama Canal is at record low levels right now due to a drought in El Nino that's going on down in South America. And they've had to reduce the maximum depth of ships going through the canal from 50 feet down to 40 feet. And that means that Each ship is carrying about 40 percent less cargo than they were a couple of months ago, which is now we're seeing increased prices, uh, delays getting things through, because instead of using one ship, you now have to use two ships, et cetera. And we're starting to see surcharges go up by three to five hundred dollars per container, which is then helping to drive inflation. So it's uh, it's an interesting time. And, you know, ironically, Mayor Pete's been nowhere to be found on this one.
2: Yeah, well, shocker, you know. I think, I think he's uh, probably trying to chest feed something somewhere, you know, and take a take a photo op for Instagram potentially. But uh, Jim Nels, you know, so so as we're looking at. Um, this supply chain crisis as you're describing it, um, you, I haven't heard anything about this in even the conservative media, and maybe I just haven't seen some of these stories, but um, why isn't there more focus on uh, something like this, especially surrounding um, you know the debt ceiling bill that uh, was just passed, and there was a lot of conversation over that, um, but, but really it seems like you know we have Pete Buttigieg that's supposed to be focused on these things, and nobody's really holding him accountable or asking where he is.
1: No, and it's just one of these things, Jenna, where it's not a sexy topic. This will become a very important topic if this is still happening as we approach the holiday season and store shelves are empty. Then you'll start to see people talking about this. But we have the same situation in the fall with the railroad workers. No one was talking about the looming railroad strike up until the point where Amtrak started canceling trains because they were worried that people were going to get stranded. And people looked to see where the Secretary of Transportation was, and he was in Portugal on vacation. So, you know, it, it's, it's not surprising to me that not many people are, are talking about this. We had an issue uh, last fall as well with the uh, Mississippi River being at low
2: level,
1: almost 4,000 barges in uh, Mississippi, and no one was really talking about that. Uh, so the you know, supply chain is, is one of these things that it's great until it's not, and people start talking about it when it's not, but it hasn't really started to happen yet. We're just in the early stages of things going wrong. A $300 surcharge isn't really hitting the store shelves yet, but if we get to $500 surcharges and then $1,000 surcharges and we start seeing more inflation, we're going to see people start to talk about this once again.
2: Yeah. And and it seems like people don't talk about it until the crisis is actually present and and instead of, you know, when we should be talking about it, which is right now. And so if uh, Pete Buttigieg was really doing his job um, as the transportation secretary, what are some solutions to this that, in your view, he could actually implement and should be implementing now to foreclose uh, some of these problems?
1: Well, he needs to do two, two things, one in the near term, one in the long term. The near term is he, he needs to become involved with this uh, labor issue with the, with the dock workers on the West Coast. That, that has to be resolved, especially, like I said, um, July, August, and September is really when the majority of goods that are sold for the holiday season come into the ports. So we need to have those ports operating at full capacity when that happens. And so we need to help get that dispute resolved. Other thing, however, that he needs to do is work with the, both the unions and the, the people that own and operate the ports to automate our ports. Our ports are the most inefficient ports in the world. In fact, there was a study that came out last year that looked at the 250 largest ports in the world. Long Beach and Los Angeles ranked 249 and 250 behind ports in China, Saudi Arabia, and even the uh, Republic of Congo. So there is a, a huge opportunity to automate our ports. And to make them a lot more efficient, the unions don't want that, but they're going to have to allow that to happen if they want to have those ports continue to operate. East Coast has already done it. The Port of Savannah I believe, the best model in the United States for how a port should be run. And they've done a very good job of integrating with the railroads as well. I can get something into Savannah and get it to Chicago as quickly as I can if it comes into Los Angeles or Oakland and get it to Chicago. So uh, the East Coast is doing it. The West Coast has to catch up. And, A really powerful and uh, a secretary of transportation who was interested in actually being the secretary of transportation should be involved in getting this done.
2: Yeah, and that, that makes so much sense. And I'm talking with uh, Jim Nels, who wrote a great piece in uh, the Daily Wire, and it's an opinion piece titled, Buddha Judge's Looming Maritime Supply Chain Crisis, and goes through the details here. I, was, I would commend that to your reading. And, uh, Jim, so what about governors of some of these states that have these ports? I mean, can this isn't just a federal issue. Um, obviously, you know, we're talking about Gavin Newsom, which I remember talking in the midst of the COVID pandemic, um, that a lot lot of this uh, supply chain crisis was due to some of the things that he was trying to overregulate regulate uh, in terms of, of some of these ports and uh, not getting the uh, supply chain flowing. And so are there things that, that governors should be doing? And um, specifically, which ones in particular are we talking about?
1: There are things that governors should be doing. Um, a lot of it would be stopping the, the loca- locales from enacting silly laws. Uh, Los Angeles County, for instance, has implemented a a law regulating the noise that can come from the port. Uh, They've also enacted something that won't allow the ports to expand because of the environmental impact on people of color in the county. So, you know, if the governor really wanted his his port system to thrive and and survive, he would step in and and do some things. But unfortunately, what we see from Gavin Newsom is supporting things like um, some of the rules in California that require trucks to have an engine in it that uh, post dates 2010. So if you have a a big rig with an engine that even if it's been been overhauled that was made in 2009, you can't drive that car or that truck uh, California road, which means you can't pick up uh, goods at the Port of Los Angeles. You can't drive them. And um, it's really leading to increased costs and increased congestion in the port because there are fewer and fewer trucks that are able to operate in California. There's one estimate that says in the last year, they've taken 75,000 trucks off the road in California because of these regulations. So really, stop, you know, stop the stupid is probably what I would say here is the best way to fix this. If we could just stop hitting ourselves in the head with a the hammer, the, the pain would go away and we'd be a lot better off.
2: I think that that's the the perfect tagline to the entire Biden administration is just stop the stupid and, and we would all be better off. So I, I think uh, that that's a great motto. And maybe he should, uh, someone should hang that out of the, the White House instead of the pride flag that, uh, you know, he was hanging out of the White House over this weekend it would be a lot, uh, a lot better. But um, Jim Nels, really appreciate that uh, this morning. And last question for you. Um, so what can... Uh, what can people do in order to uh, to hopefully help raise attention to this issue and uh, not just be talking about it, but actively uh, doing something and, and you know, petitioning our government to actually solve the problem uh, before it becomes worse?
1: Well, first and foremost is vote, vote, vote. Get out there and vote. Vote early, vote often. Get your friends to vote. <laughs> but vote these people in the office who are implementing these, these silly regulations. The next thing is get active. Go to your city council meetings and speak out. And if if you live in a port city, uh, implore your your city council to not be passing these, these silly regulations that make it so much harder for business to happen. If you look at what's happening with these regulations, they're taking away businesses' opportunity to do things themselves. And i put my faith in the innovative capacity of businesses a lot more than I do in the capacity of city and local governments to just be stupid. So... Vote, be involved, speak out, and uh, tell people that you're not going to accept it.
2: Yeah, well, really well said, and I think that applies to uh, virtually every issue and why uh, we, the people, are responsible for our government, and we can't just, uh, you know, allow the people in office to go about doing or not doing uh, whatever that is that, uh, you know, is, is their responsibility of office and um, just be passive as U.S. citizens. So, Jim Nels, always really appreciate your analysis, and you can find uh, that piece about the supply chain crisis in The Daily Wire. And um, in the last few minutes we have today, I also wanted to um, talk about a couple of other issues that um, are are really important. And speaking of California and Gavin Newsom, um, this one is just really, you know, beyond the rails insane. Uh, California Senate Bill 729 is now seeking to redefine uh, infertility to be a status as opposed to a medical condition. So as we are continuing uh, the the downward spiral in this country to uh, change the definition of everything, um, this particular bill in California would change uh, the definition to, quote, a person's inability to reproduce either as an individual or or with their partner without medical intervention. And that definition would then classify homosexual men as infertile. And so because obviously um, the how the biological process works for fertility is you have to have a man and a woman. And um, that's basic science and everyone knows that. And so homosexual men are uh, not infertile by biological definition. It's just because they are choosing uh, to not be fertile with a woman as they frankly, should be. Um, And obviously the biblical worldview would tell us that. But now California is trying to uh, reinvent this definition. And uh, the bill, which passed the Senate in California last month, would then require insurance companies to cover in vitro fertilization procedures. And so with that change in definition, this would also include forcing firms to cover surrogacy for homosexual males. And so according to the director of the Colorado Family Council, Greg Burt, he said, quote, this bill seeks to further erode the father, mother, and child nuclear family and make everyone in society pay for it to further a make-believe cause named, quote, fertility equity. The reason healthy singles and same-sex couples can't reproduce has nothing to do with infertility. It has to do with biology. And, uh, you know, as we are still in the midst of uh, June, which according to the left is Pride Month, and um, I, I, <laughs> I love to say we should not have pride at all. Uh, we should only have hope in our identity in Christ. Um, this is just a further... Ridiculous assertion of how the left is not only trying to redefine reality, but uh, and all of these definitions, but they are now trying to forcibly compel companies, um, insurance companies and surrogacy firms and others to participate in their redefinition of reality and ultimately participate in their sin. And this is why we as Christians have to call this what it is, which is a compulsory religion. We are being required and people in the state of California, if this passes, then would be required uh, to participate in a in a system that is completely against our fundamental religious beliefs and we have to say no and so you know this is something that when i when i ran across this i i just thought i mean california is just so off the rails but this is just yet another example of how the left is attempting not only in california but then on the federal level as well To try to forcibly compel us to participate in their definitions of reality and their religion. This is becoming, through bills like this, a state mandated. Religion, And we need to actively oppose this. We need to, with our voices, oppose this. And so there's an article in the Post Millennial, I think the Free Beacon, probably a couple of other outlets have covered it. I'm sure if you uh, Google California Senate Bill or SB 729, you can read the bill. Um, You can see what conservative outlets have covered that. Um, Hopefully we will here at uh, AFN and And then uh, put that out on your social media. Be talking about it. If you live in the state of California, call your legislature and tell them this is absolutely ridiculous. And this is how we have to continue to fight back with our voices. California has tried to pass some of the most ridiculous um, woke religion type of stuff that ultimately will impact our Christian faith in life if we are not actively saying no, and we can, even people who don't live in California, just by raising attention to these types of issues can sometimes, sometimes convince um, those state legislatures, legislators to stop with the nonsense and not pass these types of bills. So uh, that is California Senate Bill 729. And we will talk more tomorrow here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. You can always reach us, jenna at afr.net. And uh, be praying for the future of our country. Be Just praying for everything going on, uh, not only with President Trump and the 2024 election, but all of these things. And uh, make it a great day for the Lord.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast